Today's episode of Theoretically Speaking features Dr. Eric Benchamal from the Hospital for Sick Children, Karina Raimundo from Genentech, Dr. Anil Vachani from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and Dr. Michael Broder from the Partnership for Health Analytic Research. They deliver a high-level overview on validation of code algorithms for real-world evidence. Let's jump in. if your validation study reveals poor performance. So you've gone to all this trouble to, to do this. And I guess embedded in this <laughs> is maybe what is poor performance. Eric, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, obviously I've encountered that where my validation study fails. It happened to me for celiac disease. It's happened to colleagues of mine for autism. Not surprising. It just didn't work. I think two things. And they, there's a link question there is what is good enough for sensitivity? Yeah. So how do you tell if it's yeah. failed? So firstly, I think I think for good enough, I think we need to get away from that idea because I think it depends what research question you're trying to answer. So what characteristic, whether it's sensitivity or specificity or predictive values, which is more important will depend on what your question is and what your research design is. In some cases, you may be okay with a sensitivity of 60% if you know that your positive predictive value and your specificity is very, very high because you want a true sample of patients and not false positives. On the other hand, in other cases, you may want to catch everyone in the population and you need a high sensitivity, but you're okay with some false positives. So it really depends on what kind of cohort you want to design the study. And so I don't think that we should be using cutoffs. And what if it reveals poor performance? So for us, from record, this was maybe one of the most frustrating parts of learning to develop a reporting guideline is all we could say is, transparency, right? Like we can only encourage reporting and transparency. We can't encourage doing or making it good. (laughs) So in the reporting guideline, what we said was that you must report whether or not the codes you've used to identify your cohort, to identify outcomes, confounders, effect modifiers, were they validated? If so, provide a reference or give us information about the validation study. If not, tell us that they weren't validated. So at least you're transparent that they haven't been validated. So I would encourage that, that if it reveals poor performance, you you have to be transparent about it and you need to be aware of the limitations of your study. But in general, honestly, uh, you know, if it's a poorly performing algorithm, you probably shouldn't be using it for research because everything that follows from that is not going to be reliable. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, an informative answer. I just echo something you said about the, I think people always want to know what uh, what's the cutoff or what statistics should I use or, or that kind of thing. And I think, unfortunately, the answer that you gave is really the best one, which is that it depends. <laughs> and it depends on what your goal is. And I also think that it's useful for people to understand how, in a sense, poorly many of these ICD codes perform in general. And that just by reporting it by saying, look, our sensitivity is 65% and we know that, then even though that might not be what you want, at least that number gets put out there. And the more times people see those numbers, the more they recognize that this is just what it is. This is all of the research that we're doing using these routinely collected data. When we don't validate, then what we're getting are numbers like this. And so I think by putting those numbers out there, you're not only helping yourself because you're following the record guidelines, which I think is important, but also you're helping the community of future researchers make the case for why these studies are so important and why 
that, you know, when we find something that is 70% that we can say, oh, that's good. That's good. That's better than many of these things. Karina or Neil, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, I what think just I to start more explicitly, Steve, I'll go quickly, which is that I think that, you know, if, you're, if your algorithm is performing modestly and it's just very important to understand if you're going to go forward, what the direction of the bias is or has already sort of stated. And is there a role for a sensitivity analysis that might allow us to understand how far off, you know, your conclusions might be if you can, if that is appropriate to be robust about, about using those sort of two approaches. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In another suggestion, I guess, is not to be, at least in my experience, developing algorithms and validating them. I approach this a little open-minded, I guess. So I try, I test a few different variations of the algorithm, mm-hmm. right? So I am not going with that's the one truth that I, truth that I think is that I, that I want to see how it performs. But how would like those three different algorithms or four would perform with slight variations if I include prescription drugs? If I don't include that, if I include hospitalization visits, whatever it is that it makes clinical sense in that space. But t- I would test a few algorithms as you, and then you just report how they all perform. And there's probably one that performed better than others, even if not great. So that alone gives a direction, uh, gives you an idea of the direction, direction that you should be going for the future. So I would say maybe not go with just one yeah. fixed algorithm. I think that's a good point. And I think, Eric, you said something like that at the beginning about how you approached your validation. Yeah, so if you look at the supplemental data on the papers of the algorithms that I validated, there are thousands, right? So it's pretty easy to test with programming to test thousands of different combinations. I think it's worth mentioning what I sort of looked out for as the best markers of validity because the disease that I'm most interested in in children is pretty rare, Crohn's and colitis, compared to adults anyway, where it's about 1% of the population. And so because it's a rare disease, achieving a good positive predictive value is very, very difficult. So what I defined, and that's another good point, is like try to define ahead of time what you consider an adequate algorithm. And I defined that I wanted to maximize positive predictive value while maintaining sensitivity above about 80 or 85%. And so we tested thousands of different combinations of hospitalizations, physician billing, procedure codes, and we came up with one that did that. The reason positive predictive value is so important is because it really, in a rare disease, your specificity and your negative predictive value will approach 100%. So it's really that number that will tell you how many false positives are washing into your cohort potentially diluting your sample. And so we try to maintain a good positive predictive value. And that another important point with validating predictive values, and most people don't do this, is that if you're going to report predictive values of your algorithm, you have to make sure that the prevalence of the disease in your validation cohort is approximately the same as the prevalence of the disease in the population. Otherwise, let's say You don't have a full true negative population and your prevalence is nine true positives for every one false positive. That's 90% prevalence. Your positive predictive value is going to look amazing just because your prevalence is so high. But then you apply that algorithm to a population database where the prevalence of the disease is one in 10,000. And all of a sudden you don't know what your predictive values are doing, but they're probably much, much lower. You just haven't got a clue how they're functioning. So that's an important point about the reference standard is make sure that that prevalence is about equal to what it is in the general population. 
Yeah, I think those are both good points. I mean, validate more than one thing if you can, or attempt to measure more than one thing. That's a good way to avoid kind of a real failure. Yeah, and to, to Anil's point about subgroups, sub-validation, that's another thing that we realized is age is an, an important factor, right? Patients are not treated the same if they're 12 compared to if they're 45. And so the validation may depend on the age group of the, what you're looking at. Jurisdiction, so Kaiser, where it's salaried physicians, the frequency of visits, the billing may not be the same as a fee-for-service model. And other subgroups like male, female, gender differences, and so on. It's disease severity differences. It's important to, to validate those subgroups. Yeah. And I think another good point that, that I think it's good that we talk about, we have a few minutes left, is this idea of which statistics. I know people are always interested in that. And Eric, you commented on this, that if you look at the reported validation studies, positive predictive value is probably the most commonly reported value. And, and that's because once you have your algorithm, if you pull those cases, if you pull the medical records of those people that have positive tests, that you can calculate that statistic. But as you point out, it's not, it's not necessarily the most useful unless you're doing it in the, in the right population. So another question sort of came up about how is there any way other than choosing a sample of patients that matches the population that you could produce those others, some of the other important statistics in the sensitivity and specificity? I mean, is there a simpler way or is there something that requires less time or energy? People want to know if there's something that they can do to get a validation sample without all that work. I think my answer is going to be I'm no. I'm not aware. I think that. Wish. The, the, yes. <laughs> I think it really is just a, it's a process that begins by thinking about what do you want this algorithm to be best at, that it can't be perfect at everything. And if you want it to be best at identifying and not missing any cases, then you have to go into it with that mindset and, and, and choose a sample purposely that does that. If you want to make sure that you don't inadvertently identify that you don't have false positives, you have to choose a sample that is going to test your algorithm's false positivity. We've also got a question here about, in the panel's experience, how does the algorithm vary by source of real-world data, claims versus EMR versus registry? That's an interesting question. I mean, I guess I would have to say my experience has really only been in developing algorithms that use things that we see in claims and not any additional. That's mostly what I've been doing. But the others of you used other data sources, and you want to comment on that? So we're starting to, I mean, I think the reality is the future of all of this is linking clinical data to the claims data, linking more detailed, even free text data to administrative data, both because it gives you a level of clinical detail on the patients that you wouldn't otherwise have, but also because I think you're probably going to be more accurate. And so with that, with time, I mean, you can imagine times where free text machine learning will be the future of identifying patients. We're not quite there yet, but I think the more data you have to validate, the better it is, but then it may not be as applicable to other places, right? Like if you have linked EHR data to admin data in your jurisdiction, not everybody will have that. And therefore it may not be as usable for other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and you are we're doing a little bit of work to look at this EHR versus claims question, which is that it's certainly true that events can appear to occur in EHR data where a physician may click an event, a code, a disease diagnosis. So it shows up in EHR data, whether it's a real diagnosis or not, can sometimes be gleaned through, through notes and progress notes. And 
that's hard work. We've tr- we're starting to look at a little bit of that in one of our studies, but it's very early. It's very hard. It's very time-consuming work to do. That NLP tools may pull in, in studies like that, but you know, I think that's in, sort of still an evolution. I think so. Two questions came in that were related. One is there a way to validate ICD algorithms when we have only claims, and then why not use a combination of other factors to validate the, the claims algorithm? And and both of these, I think, allude to something that I would think of as an internal validity check, which is maybe not a validation study per se. And I, my opinion is that that's a useful thing to do. And I think that it certainly can be done in almost any time we do a study using these routinely collected data, which is to say, when I use this algorithm, do I get a group of patients that looks like the patients that I would find in a clinical trial or someplace where we know they have the condition? So my response would be, yes, that's useful. And I think if you want to um, describe that in, in a manuscript, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a validation study, but maybe... I don't know, something, again, maybe it's face validity that we're really talking about there, but any comments on that? I had just said the lives we live in right now, right, with the internet connections and all. I think this always should be done regardless. Uh, So I agree that that's not a validation per se. It's not a validation study of of either the the identification of the population or the outcome algorithm, but we should check that and report how our population looks like. And if are we finding the patients with the comorbidities that we know that they should have and kind of the makeup, age distribution, or that those things we should always check for. Great. Thank you. Eric, did you have something to add or was that? Uh, no, just very quickly. I mean, uh, you can always validate one administrative database compared to another. For example, diabetes, you could validate patients and use frequency of hemoglobin A1C testing to say that they had diabetes. But I think you have to acknowledge that there's no, you're not 100% sure that the, the, either one of those is truth, right? So there's limitations to that as well. hope you enjoyed this episode of Theoretically Speaking and that you'll tune in to future episodes where we chat with pharma value, evidence, and access experts. Don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.